This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for September 8th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, extremely fast underwater currents after a volcanic eruption. Producer Megan Cantwell talks with a pair of researchers, Michael Clare and Isabel Yeo, about the aftermath of the Tonga eruption, including fast and powerful ocean currents that severed seafloor cables. Next up, an unexpected holdup in connecting renewable power to the electrical grid in the U.S. Freelance science writer Dan Charles joins me to discuss how problems with modeling energy flow in the electrical grid are slowing wind and solar projects across the country. From tsunamis blown around the world to the tallest volcanic plume ever recorded, the eruption of Hungatonga Hungahahapai volcano has really continued to surprise researchers. This week, we're turning to how this eruption played out on the seafloor. And spoiler alert, some records were broken here too. I'm here with Isabel Yeo, a marine volcanologist, and Mike Clare, a sedimentary geologist. Their paper explores exactly how this debris swept across the seafloor. And in its wake, destroyed crucial telecommunication cables. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you for having us. I have just been so intrigued by all of the research that's been spurred from this really unprecedented eruption. In terms of the magnitude, how does this eruption compare to other documented partially or fully submerged marine volcanoes? We get a lot of eruptions in the ocean, uh, probably at least two thirds of Earth's volcanoes lie under the sea. But most of the time, those eruptions are pretty small and we don't know about them, especially in deep water. We get eruptions in the Tafua Arc, which is the bit of the arc that's near Tonga, where this volcano is located all the time. We've had maybe four in the last five years, but usually they're pretty small. So this one really took us by surprise. I was really surprised that this is the first field study to really look at what happens when the volcanic material is deposited directly into the ocean as opposed to from land and falling in. Why has it been so hard to actually find one of these sites and observe it right in its aftermath? Other studies have observed pyroclastic density currents that flow down volcanoes and, and into the sea. 
but the deposits we see from those are quite different to what we see here. There have been really big eruptions in deeper water, which have produced really large volumes of material, but those eruption columns don't break the surface. One of the problems with marine volcanoes and volcanoes that lie under the oceans is that we don't monitor them, really. So we don't really know what's active and what isn't. In terms of the kind of measurements we've been able to make, it's simply that the technology was there to make them now where it hasn't been in the past. There wasn't any modeling or anything previously to predict what it might look like if it's deposited directly into the ocean versus from land? I think we had a hunch that something significant could have happened in the past, but we didn't know what it was. We had evidence on the flanks of other submerged volcanoes along this part of the arc and other places around the world where we have these really large bed forms. And you only get these bed forms when you get a really, really big flow. These are hundreds of meters in terms of wavelength. But before, nobody had ever been able to fingerprint one of these large eruptions that fell straight into the ocean. So for the first time, we're able to, to prove that that fingerprint is correct. So now that you know that these fingerprints are associated with eruptions, is it possible for you to date or otherwise better understand past eruptions based on similar bed forms that you find in other places across the seafloor? So I think one of the exciting things that's come from the study is this has provided a unique opportunity to fingerprint these sorts of big eruptions. The deposits that we've sampled away from the volcano are actually relatively thin. So whilst close to the volcano, maybe we have 22 meters in some cases of material dumped on top of a cable. You only have to go a few tens of kilometers further away and the deposits are of the order you know, 5 to 10, 20 centimeters thickness. And that means that if we take seafloor cores, and we use relatively long coring barrels that we use in other places around the world. If we take new cores, we don't just capture what happened in 2022. We're going to capture whatever has happened in the past hundred or thousand or few thousands of years. I think we need to do some more work really in understanding how robustly we can link different types of deposits to eruptions. So looking at radiocarbon dating, looking at biostratigraphy, so the organisms that are swimming around in the water column that have then settled down on top of those deposits to get some handle of what the frequency is going back in time. We obviously need to do careful geochemical work to link the deposits to this volcano and not to other volcanoes. One thing I'd say that adds to just what Mike said there is one of the things that was really unique about this event was that we had seafloor mapping before and after the event happened. So the other thing that's really, really useful for understanding seafloor change is programs like Seabed 2030 and other initiatives that aim to map the seafloor, because we still don't know what a large area of the seafloor actually looks like. So we don't know where these volcanoes are, let alone we're still not able really to do repeat mapping on, on large scales to understand how they're changing. So that's another way of fingerprinting and timing changes and rates of change on the seafloor. Going back to the Tonga eruption, what were the techniques and instruments that you used to study exactly how this current flowed across the seafloor? When we've tried to measure other underwater flows, we've used instruments like acoustic Doppler current profilers. And these are like speed cameras underneath the sea, and they capture flows of sediment offshore from rivers, and they tell us how fast they were going. We didn't have any of those sensors here. Even if we had them there, they would be absolutely destroyed by the flows that came through. Fortuitously for us, but unfortunately for the people of Tonga, there's actually the seafloor cables that, that are laid connecting the islands of Tonga to the rest of the world. It was those cables and the damage to them that provided us with the first ever measurements of, of a flow created by an eruption like this. So we knew the point at which these flows were created and material entered the sea. We knew how far it was from the volcano to a seafloor cable. And we knew the timing of that damage. So fairly simply, we could work out the distance and the time and then work out the speed of the flows. And this is the fastest seafloor flow that anyone has ever reported to date. 
Is there a reason why this was so fast? The speed really took us by surprise. 122 kilometers per hour. Initially, we looked at the numbers and said, well, that can't be right. But it is. And then we start to ask the question, well, why? Why is this different from other flows that have been created? When we have an underwater landslide, the landslide mass actually has to mix with seawater before it creates what we call a density current that travels across the seafloor. In the case of Hunga Volcano, you basically had a cannon that shot material up to about 57 kilometers. And this material is quite big and chunky, it's dense, and it fell vertically into the ocean, unlike a landslide, which is kind of moving at an inclined or kind of horizontal motion. This combination of dropping from a huge height, going vertically onto a steep slope, and then gaining extra mass and therefore momentum explains why these flows were able to be as fast as they were, why they were able to travel for such long distances whilst keeping such a high density. We start looking at the fluxes that were involved in these flows. And you know this is equivalent to all the sediment that's transported by the rivers every single year. These flows traveled further than we've been able to map them. So we have a, a resolution limitation for the multi-beam mapping where we can't see changes in depth of less than about a meter. So we're reliant on physical sampling, mostly core samples to understand where those flows actually traveled. We've sampled flows from this eruption more than 100 kilometers away. We have colleagues in another university who've sampled them several hundred kilometers away. Uh, so they're traveling a really, really long distance, but we don't actually know quite how far because we haven't mapped out the full extent. Damaged just over 100 kilometers worth of seafloor cable on the seafloor. It didn't care too much about some of the seafloor topography. It went up hills, in some cases, more than 700 meters in elevation, and then traveled for more than 100 kilometers and, and damaged another cable, the only cable which connects the Kingdom of Tonga to the rest of the world. And these cables are important because they currently carry more than about 99% of all digital data traffic worldwide. So not only was Tonga cut off from the internet, it was cut off at a critical time in the midst of a volcanic crisis. What were the kind of repercussions of that communication cutoff in terms of communicating hazards? Or, I mean, really, for a while, everyone was just wondering if the people on the island were still surviving, right? Since there was no communication possible in the aftermath. Initially, it really hampered uh, response efforts. It was very hard to know what had happened in the eruption, who was impacted, how serious the damage was, which islands had been affected. Eventually, there had to be flyovers of a number of islands with aircraft. It had longer term impacts as well. So a large proportion of Tongan GDP relies on something called remittances, which is family working abroad, sending money back home. Plus, it impacted things like telemedicine, education, financial transactions, all business. Because the cable breaks were so remote and because the islands of Tonga are so remote, the repair took quite a long time. So it took the cooperation of a number of companies to repair the international cable. And they actually did that very quickly. Five weeks was actually quite a quick repair time. The length of damage that was done, which was 89 kilometers, is way more than you'd expect in a normal incident. But the domestic cable, which connected the islands together, took 18 months to repair. So those impacts on education, on financial transactions, on communication, it was sort of had to be done over satellites for a long time, which is much, much smaller bandwidth. Those lasted for over a year for some Tongans. There's just, I mean, a staggering number of these cables and kilometers of these cables running on the sea floor. Currently, when these cables are laid down, is there any sort of risk assessment that's done beforehand to see if they're in close proximity to volcanism underwater or anything like that? Absolutely. So um, there's maybe something like 1.5 million kilometers of telecommunication cables that cross the global ocean. Three quarters of hazards that damage seafloor cables relate to accidental human activities in shallow water. This is fishing, it's uh, accidental anchor drops. 
So these cause a small amount of damage and can be repaired very quickly. And in most other regions, there are many other cables. So if a cable is damaged or cut for some reason, you can usually reroute the internet traffic by another cable. And meaning for the most part, the global network is remarkably resilient. But if you only have one cable, you're in a remote area and you have volcanic hazards amongst other things, then it places you at the more vulnerable end of the spectrum. The lessons that have been learned from this project, I think particularly by the subsea cable industry, are if you are in a very vulnerable position where you have a single cable, having an investment in more stocks of cable for repair, investment in low-level satellite coverage, those sorts of things are going to be really crucial. Izzy, you're kind of looking at all sorts of volcanoes that are along the South Pacific. This eruption was unprecedented. You weren't expecting something of this scale, but have you also been looking into kind of the hazards from other areas that experience volcanism in kind of the same area? Yeah, so the work that we've done in this study is applicable to other places, particularly as we look to connect new regions, sort of uh, small island and developing states, many of which lie in areas which are quite vulnerable to marine geohazards, so things like volcanic areas, seismically active regions, those kind of things. And so some of the work that we're doing now is looking specifically at those regions. So where are those vulnerabilities for the future? How are they going to change with things like climate change? How are they going to change with new routes? And also how are they going to change with human behavior? What kind of sensing capabilities do these underwater cables have? Of course, they're transmitting this information, but is it that you'll have to kind of add things to these cables to be able to better sense when these sorts of events happen? Or is that already kind of a built-in capability that's on these cables? There's been really exciting developments in the field of, of what they call optical fiber sensing, which is using the, the fiber optics that are at the heart of telecommunications cables that we use to transmit information using lasers. These are about the diameter of a human hair. But you can also detect very, very small scale strains on these cables. And those small scale strains are created by things like ground motions, shaking from earthquakes that are far away. Recent studies, including those published in Science, have demonstrated how it might be possible to turn existing telecommunication cables on the seafloor into networks of seismometers that can pick up earthquakes, and they've certainly been shown to pick up volcanic activity and tsunamis. This work is still in a very early stage. So in terms of changing this into an operational system of sensors, I think the next five to 10 years will be very exciting in what we can learn from seafloor cables to fill in some of these gaps. There's also work that's underway by complementary programs that are looking at installing sensors specifically within to the repeaters that boost the signal across the ocean, typically tens of kilometers apart on subsea cable networks. These advances in monitoring are going to provide us with some really fascinating new insights going forwards. I know this is, of course, not a system that has been deployed or is ready to be used yet, but kind of in an ideal world when this is developed, what is the potential for how far in advance you can know of an incoming eruption or some sort of hazard beforehand? For volcanic eruptions, it's really variable. So there are characteristic signals we look for. One of them is called volcanic tremor, which is sort of a particular sort of vibration that you get associated with magma traveling through a conduit. But those signals are really variable in how long and how far in advance you can actually sort of detect them. Some of the sort of recent Iceland eruptions over the last three years, those have been forecast really accurately using those kind of signals. But sometimes we see only a few minutes of, of tremor before an eruption. So it really depends on the system and, and what's going on and how quickly magmas are rising and, and what's going on in the subsurface. So there's the potential for forecasting, but in terms of timescales, it's probably always going to be quite uncertain. I certainly think what, what we need is, is, again, this calibration or fingerprinting. So eruptions like Hunga Volcano 
have provided us with these kind of unprecedented time series of, of what's happened. It's, we don't have detailed monitoring data sets, but as other eruptions happen in future, we will have information in other settings and we will gain a better understanding of what different signals mean before eruptions. And as Izzy has said, different styles of eruptions, different types of hazards, not all volcanoes are the same. We have a return expedition in planning at the moment where we want to collect some further core transects, yes, to understand the extent of these flows, but also to try and sample better the really proximal deposits to really understand what's going on at that air-water interface. This is a really complicated zone and there aren't really very many measurements of any processes or, or any sort of pyroclastic material crossing that boundary. So we've got work that we're planning to understand those processes better. And then we're also developing projects to understand cable resilience and, and routing uh, for the future as well, to try and minimise impacts on communities in terms of of internet connectivity. Yeah, I think one of the crucial things about this study and the and the work going forwards is that this really needs a huge international collaboration because it brings together multiple different disciplines. As you know, Izzy's a volcanologist, I just study the bits of sand and mud and stuff that gets transported in the sea, but this project brings those things together. This spans people who are working on satellite observations, who are working on the implications for the atmosphere, on the use of cables and other sensors to make new measurements, on people who go to sea to get repeat seafloor surveys. Going forwards, I think that broad international collaboration that we certainly benefited from in this study is going to be absolutely essential. Thank you guys so much for talking to me. No worries. Thank you. No, thank you very much for having us. Mike Clare and Isabel Yeo are researchers at the National Oceanography Center based in England. You can find a link to their paper at science.org slash podcasts. That was producer Megan Cantwell on the Tonga volcano eruption. Be sure to check out the video she produced on some of the early research findings after the eruptions. We have a link for that in the show notes. Up next, we're going to hear about a long wait for renewables to join the energy grid in the U.S. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Now we have Dan Charles. He wrote this week in the magazine about an unexpected problem connecting up solar and wind energy to the U.S. power grid. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi. Glad to be here. How did you start writing or reporting on this story? What caught your attention about it? I was working on a story, a radio story, about this one particular project, the big wind project that a tribal authority in South Dakota was trying to get off the ground. And they were having this problem basically getting permission to connect to the electrical grid. They were sitting in this thing that was called the interconnection queue, and they were being assigned all these millions and millions of dollars that they would have to spend building, you know, more power lines in order to get permission to connect to the electricity grid. And they told me this one thing that caught my attention. They said, you know, in the interconnection study, the people who were running this study were having problems with the model that they were using to simulate the effects of connecting these projects to the grid. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Computer model. What's that about? Yeah. So 
there is a push to move the country off of coal, gas. What are some of the problems that we should be worried about, though, as these projects are being built, as they come online? I live in Indiana. There are solar farms here, and more are probably proposed. What are some of the issues they might face uh, that would prevent them from connecting and supplying us with energy through the electrical grid? Well, the first thing to say is the number of projects that have been proposed is extraordinary. The number of projects that have been formally proposed and asked permission to connect to the grid, it exceeds the total generating capacity of all the power plants in the country right now. So we got double on the table. We can do double if we wanted to, right? <laughs> right. And there is this thing that people have always talked about, you know, as a problem with wind and solar, and that, and that is they don't produce power all the time. They don't necessarily produce power when you want it. There's this intermittency, they call it. That is not the problem here. That was a big surprise to me. That still is an issue, but that's not what's keeping people from getting permission to connect to the grid. There, the problem is kind of the opposite. The problem is they'd produce too much electricity and at the wrong places so that you know, if you run this simulation, if all these power plants connected and generated all this power, they could melt power lines, overload uh, transformers. Basically, that is the issue. Like, who's allowed to connect? Right, because they're going to overwhelm the grid. But we talked a little bit earlier about this idea of modeling the problem. Where does this model come from? Who's, who's running this modeling experiment or these modeling studies? First, the question of who's running it. There are these regional grid operators, organizations that practically nobody has heard of that are responsible for essentially managing the flow of power and making sure that the amount of power you generate exactly meets the demand. The one I visited runs the grid sort of in the high plains, you know, sort of from North Dakota all the way down to New Mexico. California has its own system operator. So they run the studies. So if you were, for example, in California and they were going to have a rolling brownout where they're going to be like turning off parts or telling everybody to turn their heat off on their dryer, is that the, the person trying to keep the grid stable? Is that that same kind of operator, the regional operator that would do that? Exactly. That's the independent system operator for California. So that's the operational part of what they do. But they also have responsibility for planning. For instance, let's say you're in New Mexico and you want to build a big wind power plant, you go in that case to, to the Southwest Power Pool and they throw you in a big pot with a bunch of other projects that came in around the same time. And eventually they will run this interconnection study. They will fire up their model and simulate the grid. Okay, so here's where I want to know, where did this model come from? Who made this model? What are the parameters? All the model questions. These are so-called power flow models, and they were written decades ago. It's, it's sort of old software. It's sort of legacy software, but it's been around forever. And there's nothing terribly mysterious about it. Basically, these models include every like major piece of infrastructure in the grid, and they simulate. So if you start generating power at this point, this is the way the power would flow. This is the amount of electricity carried by those wires and those wires. So if you get to this point, you've been thrown in the pot, you get through the modeling study, and then you're told, no, this is too much energy, you can't connect. Is that, is that likely to happen? Yeah. Should I give you an example? Yeah. All right. There is a company called Apex Clean Energy, and they came up with a plan 
way back in 2017 to build a 300 megawatt wind farm in eastern New Mexico. Everybody there was on board. The local farmers wanted to lease land for this. Everything was all set. They had a plan. And so they submit their application in 2017 to the Southwest Power Pool. There were so many projects coming into the so-called queue at that point. It took a really long time for SPP, as it's called, to sort of get around to studying it. They decided we will study the impact of connecting these 60 new power generators to our grid. They ran the model, and there are certain assumptions in this model. So, for instance, they assume, for the purposes of this study, that all of these wind and solar plants are going to be generating maximum power. <laughs> they select moments in time that will sort of presumably stress the grid a little bit. So, they'll take a summer peak scenario. And they'll say, at this moment in time, we have these new 60 projects connected and they're all generating maximum power at these spots where they have requested to interconnect. What happens? Well, they ran their model and the model basically choked. The model said, I cannot find a solution. I, it's not possible to actually simulate the system with that much power coming in at those points on our existing transmission lines. So what does SPP do at that point? They say, okay, we have to make the model work. We will introduce new transmission lines, bigger transmission lines, bigger pipes to carry the current. Is this a case though where everything is a your hammer and everything looks like a nail. Is this their only solution that they can introduce into the model to make things flow better? Under those rules, yeah. Uh -huh. What other solutions can you have besides building more transmission lines? There are a couple of things that you could do differently here. One is you could assume that maybe all the wind and solar plants aren't generating maximum power at all times, which is realistic. Another thing you can do is sort of say, well, if it doesn't happen, if these congested power lines don't occur much of the time, maybe we should assume that when a problem arises, the people actually in the control room managing the flow of electricity will simply call up that wind plant and say, you know what, you got to throttle back for an hour or two hours. That's their job now, right? That's what they do. They can do that. And they do that routinely now. But in these studies, they don't assume you can do that because they basically don't want to create more problems for the operators down the road. Another thing you could do to make it easier to connect these power plants is there are these technologies that are able to squeeze more power onto the grid. Power lines have a rating. They say, my power line here, it will carry this much electricity. It'll carry this much current. And we can just assume that it will in all conditions. But the thing is, these are engineering assumptions that are usually kind of worst case assumptions because you don't want to suddenly run into a problem. In many cases, for instance, if it's cool and windy, that power line will be able to handle more power. So to kind of be a little bit more true to the actual limitations of the system rather than kind of being as protective as possible. Right. Now, it does take extra monitoring equipment, but there are, you know, systems where they could say, we will vary the rated capacity of our power line depending on weather conditions. 
and that would expand the amount of capacity you could have on the system. So there are these things you could tweak, like little assumptions within the model that might allow more wind and solar to connect to the grid. Yeah, these are solutions that don't involve very, very expensive transmission infrastructure improvements, right? That's the billion-dollar option that some of these generators are being asked to fund. Yeah. Building new transmission, it has to happen. Yes. I mean, there's no question that it has to happen. But one question is, like, how much has to be built right away before you connect any of these wind and solar plants? So, for instance, that wind farm I mentioned in New Mexico, the Grady Martin Wind, it was uh, one of the things that it was assigned to pay for was a massive power line, a power line so big that none of, there are no power lines that big anywhere west of the Mississippi. Wow. But in the model, they built one of these big power lines and that helped relieve the condition. And there were lots of other power lines. Grady Martin Wind, this one wind project was assigned more than $270 million of transmission upgrades that it had to pay for if it was going to be allowed to connect to the grid. So this is not a last mile problem where you're like, oh, we have these trunks and you just need to provide that last mile to like your little wind farm. This is you need to build a tree trunk in order to join your little piece of land. That's right. Yeah. Okay. You said before that the number of projects proposed is just this enormous amount of generation doubling what we have now. You know, is some of that people just it's like a gold rush, like speculation where they're just trying to see if they can get their project through and then they'll get funding and maybe they won't. And, you know, it's a little bit Wild Westy sounding. Yeah, that is a really good point. I mean, I think everybody knows that there are projects that are sitting in the queue that will never get built. It's a little hard to kind of really put a figure on this because, I mean, it might be that some players, some wind and solar developers are putting in multiple applications just to see which one actually comes back with the lower price tag. But still, even putting that aside, there's an enormous amount of projects that are waiting for permission and they're, have, they're having to wait a long time, like three, four, five years. There is also kind of like a federal layer to this. I mean, that's kind of where the pressure to change how much energy is coming from fossil fuels to renewables, but are they in any way involved in what the grid operators are doing or these interconnection queues? So there's a federal agency, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, which does set the rules for some of these things. And they are in the process of revising their rules because, you know, the commissioners have recognized that the queue is a problem. And the fact that projects are sitting in the queue for so long isn't, isn't a good thing. So they're in the process of issuing a set of new rules. And some of them have to do with just like, you know, how the models are run. And some of them will deal with how should the costs be allocated. I was going to say, is anybody saying maybe the solar wind farm should not pay for new transmission lines for everybody? Yeah, a lot of people are saying that as a matter of fact, <laughs> particularly, you know, those trunk lines, uh, the interstate highways, as opposed to the local road that leads to your wind or solar farm. Because when new transmission lines get built, yes, they benefit the solar or wind farm that's trying to connect to the grid. So maybe that wind farm should pay part of the cost, but they also benefit the entire system. And so maybe a broader set of consumers should pay for it. And then it gets even more complicated because 
you know, there are some parts of the country which are going to be exporting a lot of renewable power. And SPP is a prime example of that. They don't have that many people. But it's windy and sunny, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's windy and sunny. So you would want to really build out transmission networks across the boundaries of these regions so they can export more power to places with big industry or, or lots of people. And the funding mechanisms are not really in place for that. And so, you know, some people are saying the federal government should actually, you know, release a lot more funding for uh, transmission and, you know, sort of long distance, high capacity electrical transmission infrastructure. Really interesting. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. Oh, thank you. Thanks for uh, being interested in this. Yeah. Dan Charles is a freelance science writer based in Washington, D.C. You can find a link to the feature story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, Megan Cantwell, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us.